I once told a music friend that I wanted to be like an an optimistic version of Randy Newman. Oh. <laughs> and and he said, "I well, that's a good idea, but I don't think there's such a thing." <laughs> <laughs> Hi. I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is Season 1, Episode 7, Creativity. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. So here's something that's a little disappointing. According to a YouGov poll conducted in January of 2020, one in four Americans don't think that they're creative. Only 28% think that they're very creative, and the rest, about half of the country, only consider themselves, quote, somewhat creative. This is a problem. You and I, all of us, we constantly rely on each other's creativity. Without enough of it, we're left to pretty terrible circumstances. Am I being too dramatic? Maybe, but I don't think so. Let me show you why. Wherever you are right now, take a look around you. I guarantee you are surrounded by the fruits of someone's creativity. It might be the car that you're driving in, the photo that's on your wall, the clothes you're wearing, or even just the device that's playing this podcast. In each of those examples, the creative work of thousands of people made it possible. Humanity, at a fundamental level, thrives on our creating things or ideas that did not exist before. I knew I wanted to do an episode on creativity, so I turned to a friend who is one of the most deliberately creative people I know. His name is Andrew Maxfield, and he's a composer, mostly of choral music, and he's trained at some of the most elite institutions in the world. You'll hear some of his music in this episode. But his creativity portfolio spills into all kinds of other things, like business, he has an MBA, education, nonprofits, theater, and, and well, the list goes on. So with Andrew, let's begin at the beginning. I asked him to tell me about where his creativity started. I'm the son of a dad entrepreneur and a mom who is a flute teacher. And I feel like I got half of my brain from each of them. It's sort of a strange mix. Like part of my brain is spreadsheets and business plans and part of my brain is colors and sounds and crazy artsy stuff and I don't know when that first which parts clicked in when but I do remember when I was a really little kid probably just after I'd started piano lessons when I was five or something like that lying on my stomach on the, uh, the carpet floor in my parents apartment and my mom had given me a blank sheet of music staff paper and I was composing, you know, I had no idea what that meant, but I was just sort of draw, drawing circles and lines on it. <laughs> and, and then I asked her to play my composition for me and she obliged. And I, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, was it good? Was it bad? Was it silly? Of course, all of those things. But the, the, the thing about an experience like that and the memory of it is that I feel like kids especially are just, effortlessly creative they don't question the creative impulse they don't stop and say oh well you know have i been adequately trained do i have the technique of an artist is there a big plan in mind for all this they're just they're just sort of filling the world with their 
creations, I think, until schools run by grown-ups basically beat that out of them. Just imagine being effortlessly creative. If you're not that way now, you almost certainly used to be. Our capacity for creativity is a lot stronger than we may believe, and that's because creative thinking is really a natural part of who we are. We limit ourselves through habit, through belief. In fact, research shows that once we get past providing for our basic needs, our minds are actually wired to wander and explore. There was a time in your life when you got excited about far-out ideas, like this one of Andrew's. In addition to having those kind of early feelings of making music or creating stuff when I was a little kid, like I said, I had, you know, half my brain was from my entrepreneur dad and half my brain was from my flute teacher mom. And I didn't just come up with a song. I also thought, oh, well, this is the, the, the group that would perform it. And this is what the album would look like. And I don't know what other 11-year-olds was, were doing with their discretionary time, but I was dreaming up album covers. And I mean, it's kind of dorky to, to say now, but you know, like the Carmen Sandiego TV show that had the Rockapella group that was singing on it. I thought, wow, Rockapella, now that is cool stuff. I can imagine a group like that singing my music and this is what the album cover would look like. I just have to reflect for a moment that I find it completely awesome that Rockapella is part of your creative journey. Now, Andrew never produced an album with Rockapella. Although, if I pointed this out, he would probably say, not yet. <laughs> you might hear this story and consider his daydreaming to be a wasted effort. But this reflects another common misconception about creativity. That creativity is somehow a trade-off with other abilities like planning or hard work meaning you can't be a good planner or a hard worker if you're also a creative person. The truth is that creativity and our other skills, they all work together, but they each need room to work. Andrew thinks of it as wearing different hats at different times. Yeah, I feel like I learned a great lesson from a college professor of mine who was kind of an unconventional professor. He had had a, a career in commercial music was a terrific electric bass player, but also had been a, a successful studio owner and business guy. And he liked the metaphor of wearing different hats. And in this case, it was he was referring to the songwriting process. And he said that, you know, there's a time for the madman where you wear the madman hat that's just pure creativity with no purpose or direction in mind. Uh, then you might wear an editor hat where you're being a little bit more critical of what you've created. And then there's this poet hat where you're trying to give it a, a finesse and a fine touch. There's these different sort of times and you need a different outlook for each of those times. And I think it's true generally for my business hat and my composer artist hat. It's hard to wear them both at the same time. So I try to give each its turn. Because it's impossible to force new ideas out of our brains, what we have to do is find ways of providing fertile ground so they can spring up. In her book, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron teaches us that we're more creative when we have habits that encourage it. Here's how Andrew describes his creative habits. Yeah, when I, I call it my morning routine, and it's true, it's not easy to, to do, and I won't say that I 
you know, have a hundred percent follow through rate here. I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old who sometimes wake up early and all the rest, but, but my morning routine, when, when I, when I pull it off, I get up at five and it's a quiet time of day and my mind tends to be fresh and I'll usually spend a couple of minutes in sacred texts, just sort of centering myself. And then I'll spend a couple of minutes doing a, a free write, a long hand free write. I have a clipboard that has a, a thick stack of blank copy paper on it and a jar full of mechanical pencils. And I just let it rip. Oh, I also have a favorite fountain pen. Sometimes I write with my favorite fountain pen, but there's really no point or purpose to the, this activity other than sort of clearing out the cobwebs and finding my own kind of quiet center. So sometimes, you know, worries that I have find their ways onto the page. Sometimes puzzles I'm trying to solve, uh, business or creative. Sometimes it's just laundry lists of stuff that I remember that I need to do, find, find their way into the margins of the pages. It's a practice I did not invent. It, I found it in a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which I highly recommend. But the, the purpose of that routine so far is really just sort of working on me. And in some sense, it's kind of attending to my inner compass or my inner ear uh, more than it is trying to make anything. In fact, it's specifically not trying to make anything. It's just working on the the flow. And then I'm a pianist and I, I play a little bit of Bach in the mornings uh, when the routine is going well. And again, you know, that's, and that's something I picked up from the cellist, Pablo Casals, who said that playing Bach in the mornings was like uh, pronouncing a benediction on the day. And these things are, these are not me making stuff. It's me sort of ordering the chaos within me. So I feel like I'm ready to make things, but then somewhere along the line, then I, I do pivot into making things. And it's usually because somewhere in that morning practice, I, I find the thing that I'm ready to work on or the thing that's calling out that's kind of saying, hey, it's time for me or something like that. Notice how Andrew's habits include more than just quiet contemplation. They involve all kinds of thinking and action, and they also involve tools. So another excellent book on creativity was written, surprisingly, by a Chicago economist named David Gallinson. Although the core message of his book is how some creative achievements come quickly while others might take decades, what's most fascinating to me about his observations is how deeply rooted creativity is in the tools that we use. Whether it's from the young geniuses who break molds or from the old masters who hone their craft over years and years, pretty much all breakthrough creativity involves an intimate relationship with tools. Absolutely. I have some things that I would call just, you know, sharpening saw to sort of diagonally borrow a phrase from Stephen Covey. But for me, these are things that I think of as maybe artistic yoga, musical yoga. This is me working on my core muscles. So sometimes I'm doing rhythmic studies. I recently bought a cajon that uh, 
sort of box shaped drum that people associate with flamenco music. And I sit on it and I play it for a couple minutes or I play through pieces that are new to me, or I just sit there and think through chord progressions. I don't know. It's hard to explain exactly what it is, except, but it, but it's sort of what I think of as sharpening the thought. So if the morning routine is more about sort of like cultivating an inner awareness and readiness, then this is more like active skill building. What are your creative tools? When your mind wanders, what's in his backpack? These tools don't have to be paintbrushes or pianos. I mean, as silly as this sounds, your creative tools might be PowerPoint or, or even Excel. The point is that simply tinkering with these tools is a creative habit. And, and by the way, so is sitting still or wandering around. Like, like I noted before, once our minds have provided for our basic needs, they really like to explore. It's a tragedy that we've come to see something like daydreaming as a waste. It's actually an incredibly unique thing. I mean, think about it. You have this ability to imagine completely different circumstances than what reality has provided to you. Think of what you can do with that. It's like a superpower. Like Andrew explains, you have to give your mind space to wander. If you saw me sitting in an office and I was staring out the window and sketching, you might think, what is that guy doing? We're not paying you to stare out a window and sketch. And then you go to your favorite podcast program and you listen to that guy being interviewed on a podcast about creativity. And it turns out that creativity, I think, depends largely on having unstructured transition times where you can let your imagination wander. So I think that we, I think most corporate settings anyway, systematically eliminate the opportunities for individuals to practice creative practices. Not intentionally, but it's just a sort of a byproduct of our work-obsessed culture where if you don't feel like you're going to die because you're working so hard, you're not actually working. But letting your mind wander isn't just about having time to stare out of a window. Creative practices, like Andrew described, are actually quite deliberate, and they require making space. Here's how he finds the space he needs to be prepared for creativity. I like transitions. I like the interstitial time. I like periods of aimlessness and boredom. And what I, what I mean by that is it's the time, you know, it's while you're in the shower and you're just standing there because the water is warm or it's the walk between the house and the bus stop. It's while you're waiting for your kids to get off the school bus. It's all these kind of in-between moments. And I feel like we have a scheduling tendency to fill our schedules up with the big meetings and calls and to-dos and and you look at a schedule that just gets chalked, you know, kind of blocked up full. But I feel like creativity is oftentimes sort of this subconscious accidental connecting of dots that we didn't realize could be connected. And they oftentimes have, that oftentimes I think happens in moments of transition. And now for a word from our sponsor. 
How do you develop your people if they're working remotely? It probably feels harder than ever to give them an engaging and valuable learning experience. And building a team means learning together, which can be even harder these days. At Merit Leadership, we have just the thing. Our Leading with Ethics course is a live, online, or in-person experience that builds your team's ethical skills and leadership skills together. People overwhelmingly love it because it's engaging, it deepens relationships, and it develops practical skills that people use at work every day. To learn more, click on the link in the show notes or visit MeritLeadership.com. For me, one of the most vexing things is that almost all of my new ideas look brilliant at first. I mean, they look amazing, but that's before reality has a say. It's a small fraction of my ideas that actually turn out into something worthwhile. How do you sort through the good ideas from the bad? I asked Andrew about this, and his perspective was eye-opening. I think over time I've tried to stop thinking in terms of good idea, bad idea. Because realistically, I think the way that life unfolds is that every day you have some time to do stuff. And then you have a menu of things that you could do. And typically the menu is larger than what you have minutes for. And so the way I think, the way I think about good idea, bad idea is I fill my, my hopper with ideas. And then periodically, I mean, I don't do this every morning or something like this, but periodically I look at the stuff that I've accumulated and I just kind of ponder on it. And I think, oh, which one is the now idea? Which one is ready to plant? You know, which one could go somewhere? So I usually don't find myself in the position of saying, wow, I have time to be creative. What on earth should I do? I, you know, usually I say, oh, I've got some time. Which one of these things is ready to be attended to. Yeah. I love that idea. I love the way you described it as a now idea. It's not a good idea or a bad idea. It's just a now idea or a not now idea. Yeah. And let's be clear. I come up with plenty of ideas that may be never ideas and I'm okay with that. And you say never ideas, but I mean, really, they're just all not now ideas, right? Because who knows what the future will hold. And I think you're right. We have an instinct to make things right or wrong. But when it comes to creativity, that feels like a, anytime you call an idea wrong, you're always making fundamentally a premature evaluation of it because who knows what the future holds. Well, yeah. And who's to say? I think what you're doing inadvertently is you're judging yourself as the ideator as being wrongheaded. And that messes with your flow of ideas. If instead you just look at it and say, hmm, is this the one for today? Nope. All right. Maybe it'll be next week. I heard an entrepreneur once say that in order to for to have a successful startup amidst the improbability of actually having a successful start, startup, you need the right people, the right ideas, and the right money at the right price, so to speak. And I feel like there's something like that to a creative practice where you need a constant uh, supply of potential ideas, and then you need a healthy creator. and if you can kind of keep that flowing, then good things will come of it, even if you can't predict exactly which one and when. And this brings us to the hardest part. Creative ideas love to stay that way. It's just ideas, not something in reality. Getting these ideas out of our heads and into the real world 
is one of the hardest and most amazing things we can do as human beings. So once upon a time, you and I had a conversation and you shared a phrase that stuck with me that I've used repeatedly since. And it's the phrase, wrestle it into existence. There's a thought that ideas are out there, but that's all they are until, until somebody actually grabs one and pulls it into the real world. But that pulling is a wrestle. It's not an easy process. Can you explain that a little more, what, what it's like for you to wrestle an idea into existence? You know, when I say wrestle into existence, I think at some level, I'm just trying to give a name to my one and only skill set. Because, you know, you, you talk about being creative in different disciplines. And I feel like at the end of the day, the, just about the only thing I'm good at is identifying something that could happen and then, you know, beating my head against the wall until it does happen. Well, if that really is your only skill, that's a pretty good one. And you're good at it. So I've, yeah, I guess wrestling things into existence. But I, you know, I'm looking out a window over the Boston skyline right now. And there are some very tall buildings that stick up into the skyline. And those weren't always there. You can imagine a skyline that does not have those buildings in it. And at some point, somebody was staring at that skyline and said, huh, I bet there could be something right there. And maybe it would be tall and maybe it could be covered in glass. It doesn't exist now, but it could. And then, you know, 10,000 conversations later and 10,000 drafts of blueprints later, and you have excavators digging a hole for the foundation of that thing that doesn't yet exist, but could. So when I talk about wrestling things, into existence, I guess I'm talking about sniffing out my ideas and, and looking for one that just seems to click, where it's kind of the right idea for the right time. It seems to have the right connections to you know whomever is involved. I feel like I can see a long arc from just the, the idea of it through conversations that I'd need to have through the blueprint, so to speak, that would need to be created in order to get everybody to believe that this thing ought to exist to the point that it does exist. And, and you know, no, no, no two processes are the same, but I feel like there's a certain kind of pattern to it. You've probably been noticing that there are patterns involved when it comes to creativity. And maybe we could call it a recipe, or at least a set of ingredients. Essentially, it's a process of bringing stuff and people together to make something new. I asked Andrew to kind of explain the pattern as he saw it. Danny Meyer, who's a well-known New York restaurateur and hospitality super guru, has this ABCD phrase, which is always be collecting dots so that you can always be connecting dots. So one of my one of my habits, one of the things that I do is that I am that I am always collecting dots. I love striking up conversations with strangers. Again, my wife thinks it's kind of weird. But just the other day I was getting on a bus in Boston, which of course is a, a fascinating place to live because it's full of people doing crazy interesting things. And this guy sits down next to me. 
kind of older older gentleman and I asked him what he was up to and he said, ah, well, I'm, I've just published my latest paper on the nature of light. And that's an interesting conversation starter. Like, wow, okay, tell me more. The result of doing these kinds of things is collecting dots or sitting down in a library in the periodical section and picking up five magazines and saying, well, I'm going to read one article from each abuse. I don't know anything about woodworking. Okay, or motorcycles. That's when I figured out that Billy Joel owns a motorcycle shop in Long Island. That's kind of cool. But <laughs> so there's this idea of always be collecting dots so that you can always be connecting dots. Andrew later pointed out to me that as a composer, he's not just connecting metaphorical dots. I mean, he's literally connecting dots on pieces of paper all day. Now, I will say if there's a problem with this analogy of connecting dots, it's that this sounds like a casual sort of thing, like something you could do taking a shower or enjoying your lunch. Creativity is hard work. It's a wrestle, like we discussed earlier. To give an example of this, I asked Andrew to tell me about one of his favorite projects. This is a choral album that he wrote and produced based on the poetry of Wendell Berry. When I was an undergrad music major, I had by that point been reading the poetry and essays and some of the longer form fiction by an author named Wendell Berry, who's an octogenarian Kentuckian writer and sort of a, a grandfather of the slow food movement, one of my literary heroes. And after spending quite a bit of time with his poetry, simply because I liked it, I looked at it on the page and I thought, good grief, this sounds like choral music. Somebody should write that down. I'm not the first person to have thought that. That isn't so clever. But I, I looked at it and I thought, maybe I'll write that down. And so I spent time in the margins over a couple of years, actually, writing choral music that to my ears sounded the way that Wendell Berry's poetry sounded. I Along the way, I hatched the idea. I thought, oh, I wonder if people who like reading Wendell Berry's books would like listening to an album of music with his poems as the text the music. So I figured out how to meet Wendell Berry's publisher and asked for permission and guidance and started corresponding with Wendell Berry through longhand snail mail, which is how he does it. And I just kept collecting dots along the way. And ultimately, I thought, I wonder if Mr. Berry would be willing to be recorded reading his poetry. Uh, and that could be on my album. And so I asked and eventually found myself in a rental car in rural Kentucky, pulling up in front of his house with a field recorder in my backpack. Time passes. And, and ultimately, I sold a couple thousand albums of choral music that also included Wendell Berry's voice reading his own poetry. When you say wrestling things into existence, that's just what I do. I, I it started with a spark of an idea saying, gee whiz, I'm not aware of sort of a concept album based on Wendell Berry's poetry that would resonate with his fans. What would be the all of the things that would have to be true in order for that thing to exist? And then you make them to the list of the things that have to be true. And, it, and at some point, once they're all true, then the thing exists. I believe that the hard work of creating is part of what makes it so fulfilling. In fact, everyone should have some sort of project going on in their lives, something that draws hard work and creative energy out of them. And it doesn't have to be tied to a paycheck. But the truth is that, you know, I've worked with people uh, in various jobs in the past where they're, they, they seem very comfortable to, to enjoy the reliability of kind of punching in and out of work. And what it does is it serves the life that they love 
outside of work where they are constantly connecting the dots that they've collected. They, they find that kind of fulfillment, gardening, exploring, hiking, you know, painting in an amateur way, whatever it is that makes them happy. And I, I feel like we, we're, we're all too quick to assume things about ourselves and about other people. And maybe that's one reason why I like having a, a morning routine that sort of focuses on centering myself. Cause I, if I, I think that if I, if I figure myself out, then I'm a little bit less worried about saying, well, am I creative or am I not creative? It's just more about, well, who am I and what will I do with the minutes that I have today, given what um, dots I've collected. To get a sense of how fulfilling it is for us when we create, I want you to listen to Andrew's answer to my last question. When you look back at all you created, what do you hope to see? The timeless jokes are timeless for a reason. When you think about the 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 you know the joke that you know, the rich man dies and how much did he leave behind? Oh, all of it, right? And I think maybe the older I get, that perspective is liberating. I feel like because I have some gifts as a choral composer, I'd like to think that. I can write beautiful pieces that reflect the, some light in the world that that singers love singing, that conductors love conducting, that listeners love listening to because there's something true and timeless and and you know worthwhile in it, and that you know maybe I can I can be helpful in that way. What I want to do every day from this point forward is just to be honest in my response to that internal sense of calling and purpose, which is to use those abilities for good purposes to make a contribution. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of what everybody wants. That's what I want for myself in my creative work. And so I want to keep myself honest and focused on the relationships that matter most, but also given that it's all going to disappear at some point, given that my name will wear off with whatever headstone I get, I'd like to use the unique package of gifts that I have to be helpful in the ways that I can. And I see a lot of people doing great work that I could never do because it's not my thing. It's not my calling, but I'm just trying to find the things that I can do very best and make those contributions as I go. Like Andrew said, When we pass on, we really don't leave much behind. But the core value of creating something isn't about leaving a legacy. We create to cultivate good things in our lives and in the lives of other people. And when we do it right, what we create gives people reasons to smile or to connect with a loved one or feel a sense of peace or make something new of their own. We make the things we make so that someone's life can be better. I'm grateful to my friend Andrew Maxfield for his time and for his practical wisdom. I hope you picked up an idea for something new to try in your day to be more creative. Also, I'm sure you're interested in hearing his music. Well, he very graciously gave us permission to include some of it here at the end of the episode. So be sure to stick around after we're done with the closing credits. If you enjoy How to Help, please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast app. It really does help us to reach more listeners. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get future episodes automatically. 
Our next episode is all about a common ethical dilemma. What do you do when you see something going wrong, but intervening is scary or dangerous? Bill O'Rourke is going to guide us through this situation. He's a co-author with me on the Business Ethics Field Guide and has all kinds of crazy stories and sage advice. You'll quickly see why Bill is a beloved speaker at universities and businesses around the country. To stay up to date with how to help, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Each edition recommends high-impact organizations and shares ideas for how you can have more meaning in your work. You can find it at how-to-help.com, which is also linked in the show notes. We're grateful as always to have Merit Leadership as a sponsor and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in the show notes. Finally, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been How to Help. Planting trees early in spring We make a place for birds to sing In time to come early in spring We make a place for birds to sing